when I worked as an emergency room doc, I was hit, kicked, um, wrestled with, peed on, literally, um, yelled at. Uh, all of those things happened, but none of those things have ever happened to me in, in the jail. Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Menken, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine on route. All right, welcome back. So here's a quick trivia question to get us started. Which group of U.S. patients are constitutionally guaranteed access to free medical care? And no, this isn't a trick question. The answer? Prisoners. Today, we're jumping into an area of medicine few, if any of us, know much about. Let's be honest. How many of you out there have actually seen the inside of a prisoner jail? Not many, we guess. After all, criminal records and professional medical licensing don't usually mix well. For those of you who've been with us a while, you know this isn't a political program. I say this because we're going to read a few stats here, but don't worry. We're not gearing up for a policy discussion on prison reform. It is an important issue, but it's outside the scope of our conversation today. As of 2016, there were 2.1 million people incarcerated in the U.S. That makes us the world leader both in total number incarcerated and a per capita incarceration rate, 655 per 100,000, that is. That rate beats everyone, even places like China, North Korea, Russia, Kazakhstan, and Saudi Arabia. As of 2015, the U.S. population represented only 4.4% of the global population, while we held a whopping 21% of the global prison population. Okay, you've probably heard some of these stats before. We just wanted to read them off to get an idea and appreciation for just how big prison medicine is in the U.S. That's over 2 million people who are constitutionally guaranteed free medical care. So just imagine how many doctors, nurses, and other medical professionals it takes to deliver that amount of care. Today's guest is one of them. Dr. Jeffrey Keller is an emergency medicine physician. After 23 years working in hospital ERs, Keller got a call one day from the local jail. They needed help. Working in a prison didn't sound too appealing, though, so he politely declined. The following year, they called again, and this time he reluctantly agreed, but only on a temporary basis. Then a funny thing happened. Keller actually started to enjoy his work seeing and treating inmates. So began a new path in Keller's career. It's a fascinating path through a largely unknown area of medicine that we're going to explore with him today. As you can imagine, he's got a lot of stories, too. So with that said, let's get started. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank we're going to have a lot of fun today. This is a really interesting topic, something we haven't explored yet. Absolutely. And I'm uh, very glad to be here and thankful that you invited me. Well, we're happy to have you. So, Jeff, we have to start out here. This is not a normal career path in medicine, at least for most people, or something they would think about. But tell us how you got into prison medicine and corrections medicine, if using the right term, and uh, how you got to where you are now. You bet. I mean, nobody goes to medical school and says, I want to be a prison doc. Uh, that just isn't uh, on anybody's goal. So most people who are in correctional medicine, and that's the correct term, um, get there by accident and happenstance, and that's what happened to me. So I'm an ER doc by training. Uh, I went to medical school at the University of Utah, did my residency in Akron, Ohio, in emergency medicine, and then I practiced for 23, 24 years uh, in a busy uh, trauma center in Idaho. Um, and I enjoyed ER medicine. I certainly didn't dislike it. Uh, in the mid um, 1990s, 
I got a call from the county commissioners here, and they said, we need someone to be, uh, uh, you know, to help us with the jail. So we need someone to provide medical services to the inmates at the county jail here. And being the, you know, civic-minded, good old boy that I am, I said, hell no, what are you, nuts? <laughs> You'd want to work in a jail. And I, so I turned them down. And then about six months later, they came back and said, we're desperate. We've talked to everybody in town. Nobody will help us. And so I said, okay, I'll do it for one year and one year only to help you out. Uh, so I started going to the jail and um, I found out two things that surprised me. One was that I liked it. It was interesting work. It was different. Uh, it was needed. These people were sick. Um, and, um, and so that was great. But then the other thing was that my phone kept ringing. Uh, we're the jail up the road in the next county, and we need a doc too. And then my phone would ring. We're the jail down the road. We hear that you're providing medical services to jails. We'd like to use you too. So pretty soon, over the course of a few years, I just gradually accumulated jails, and uh, my ER uh, shifts went down proportionately, and after about 10 years, um, I was just too busy, so I, I stopped the ER work entirely and just uh, just did jails. So, uh, so, that was, uh, so that was how I got into jails. Then um, jails and prisons are two different dogs, way different dogs. So then um, I was invited um, to become the chief medical officer of a of a new prison medical company called Centurion, and I accepted that. And uh, so, um, for about five years, I was involved in prison medicine as well, and uh, in in many states, most of them um, in the East, Massachusetts, Florida, and some others. So I got to know prison medicine uh, as well. Um, I retired from that uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, but I still have my jails, and I still go into my jails. Besides doing administrative work, I actually still do clinics, go in and see patients. This might be jumping the gun, but uh, you brought it up. What is the difference between uh, correctional medicine in jails versus correctional medicine in prisons? Well, jails is uh, uh, jails are short-term facilities right. where, where, where people go when they're arrested, so they come in right off the street and... They're not there very long. The average length of time for someone to be in a jail is about 14 days, 21 days. But you get people right off the street. So you get people who have acute medical problems. So one of the common ones is withdrawal. So we have, uh, jails deal with alcohol withdrawal. So I, I'm sure that I have treated more people for alcohol withdrawal by far than any other physician in the state of Idaho. By far. Wow. Uh, and a ton of heroin withdrawal and any kind of withdrawal you want to know. Bath salts, we see it all because that's people come running off the streets. Plus, we get to see people who come in and haven't had any medical care. So we'll, we'll see people whose right. blood pressure is 240 over 130 and they didn't even know it and on and on and on. So, uh, but they're not there very long. So we take care of acute problems. It's quick and uh, um, we, we see people who are acutely psychotic. We see people who are uh, manic and unmanageable. Uh, so that's jail medicine. Um, it's kind of analogous to ER medicine. So mm -hmm. you see people who are really sick, but you, you only have them for a short amount of time. Prisons are different because people don't, usually don't come into 
prisons right off the street. They've gone to a jail first, and then uh, after they've been in a jail for a while, then they get transferred, convicted and transferred to a prison. So they don't show up usually cold to a prison, and they're in a prison for a long time, at a minimum of a year. Right. So with prisons, you're going to have them for a long time, maybe the rest of their life. And with prisons, it's more about chronic care. So you're treating uh, people who grow old under, with you, uh, get all the diseases of, uh, that you would see in a community. So you treat autoimmune diseases, cancers, heart disease. Um, you do screening, um, you know, cancer screening, all sorts of screening tests. Um, and that's the, that's, that's prisons. So prisons yeah. and jails are quite a bit different. Yeah. And as an ER trained doctor, did you um, have trouble transitioning to the more chronic nature of the prisons? Well, I didn't have trouble, but I, I did have to learn it a little bit. Uh, so okay. I wasn't trained sure. in that. I didn't do that. I wasn't a, a general practice doctor in the community. So I didn't do a lot of, you know, <clears throat> cancer screening. So I had to learn right. a lot, but, um, um, but I thought I found it very interesting and I liked it. There's like 10 different directions we can go here. So let's just pause for a moment, Jeff, just so we can understand a little more about how prison medicine works in general. If we can kind of zoom out, and I'm sure it works different in every system from jails to prisons to the federal system. But first, let's start. What are the legal rights and what are the um, what what has to be provided for incarcerated patients? One. And then how is the system funded? Are you know, give us an idea of the staff. Is it more contractors? Is it private companies that do most of this now? Is it um, full-time physicians, nurses who work on staff? Just kind of give us, you know, I know it probably works, like I said, different everywhere, but give us an idea of how the system actually works. All right. Well, uh, you'll, I might get off track here, so make sure I, I answer all of your questions. But um, so as far as the, the legal obligation to provide medical care to inmates, um, <clears throat> The Supreme Court ruled in uh, 1976 in a landmark case called Estelle v. Gamble uh, that inmates have a constitutional uh, right to medical care. They're the, actually the only citizens, and not even citizens, residents, because this, uh, this right applies to uh, illegal aliens, anybody who's incarcerated, anybody incarcerated in the United States has a right to medical care under Estelle v. Gamble. Hmm. Um, and what that uh, said, that Supreme Court ruling said, is that uh, it is deliberate indifference. Um, you can't be deliberately indifferent to a um, serious medical need. And so you can't ignore it. Uh, before 1976, inmates had no uh, right to medical care, and uh, I think a lot of it was ignored. I think of that as the dark ages. But since that, every facility has to provide, uh, have a system for providing medical care, mental health care, and dental care to its inmates. And that applies to the big prison system, so a prison that, you know, prison system like Florida with 100,000 inmates, they've got to have a system, a jail, uh, uh, a big jail like Maricopa County with 10,000 inmates, 
jails. They've got to have a system, but even little jails. So a little community in Idaho that has a jail that literally has 10 beds, they've got to have a way of providing medical care. So of course the system that's set up is different with each, uh, you know, how big the system is. Um, it depends, uh, a big jail or a big prison, of course, is going to have full-time people, full-time nurses, full-time doctors, full-time administrators, full-time everything, mental health people. But a little jail, say, a, you know, a 10-bed jail or even a 50-bed jail in a small community, um, maybe just has people come in from the uh, come in once a week and, and see inmates uh, or come in on call, that sort of thing. So it depends on how big the system is and how sophisticated uh, the commissioners are um, as to um, what system is set up. But they have to have a system because inmates have that right. So how it's paid for is, uh, is interesting because it is totally different than the rest of medical care. So medical care outside of corrections is kind of a, is a fee-for-service sort of thing everybody you're all everybody's familiar with it you know people have to have to have insurance and you get a bill and stuff but in jails and prisons uh it's not like that it's kind of more like a canadian system in which the physicians are paid um a flat rate for providing care and the inmates just have access to care so by being there they have access they don't have to have uh, any other insurance or anything. There are no haves and have-nots as there are in the regular medical system. You know, I have insurance, so I get stellar care. I have no insurance. Uh, my wallet biopsy came negative, so the, the hospital boots me out. No VIP happen. patients or anything like that? No VIP patients. So everybody has equal access to medical care, equal access to the clinics. And who pays for it is the taxpayers. So whatever tax, whatever entity is in charge of that facility, that's where the money comes from. So if it's a federal facility, that's your federal tax dollars at work. If it's a state facility, that's your state tax dollars. If it's a county jail, that's your county tax dollars. Um, go to provide medical care for the inmates in that particular facility. So the people in charge of funding uh, medical care at a county jail or the county commissioners, the people in charge of funding medical care at a prison is the state legislature, a state prison, and the ones in charge of funding the federal medical care in federal prisons is the national legislature. Interesting. Is I, I remember this is you know <clears throat> one example, but. Um, Actually, Keith was actually doing surgery one morning, and we were waiting for his case to get started, and they had an inmate in the operating room next to us. And I can't remember what it was for, and probably really shouldn't have known because it wasn't a patient I was dealing with. But I remember they put the patient under anesthesia. The guard was standing you know, just where the scrub sink was, and I just asked him. I said, hey, you know, um, just curious, you know what? You know, how does this work when you bring him in here? Is it, you know, is it contracted with this hospital? And he, he explained the whole thing. He said, actually, this particular guy is going to be released here in a couple of weeks. He's just in jail for, or yeah, in jail for uh, um, child support, uh, non-payment. So he said, if in the, the way it works here, he said, if they get injured in the prison, say in a fight, the county pays for that. 
But if it's something else, like a chronic problem, which he was there for, he actually has to pay for that when he gets out. So is that has that been your experience, or is that more unusual? I mean, if you know, if an inmate's going to be released pretty soon, or if it's some more chronic problem, they may be responsible for it, or in one way or another, does the, the government pay for it? Well, um, let's take a county jail like the, uh, like the case that you're uh, uh, talking about. So um, as long as the, is the inmate is, um, is an inmate, is, under the, is held involuntarily uh, as an inmate of the jail, the county is responsible for their medical um, bills. So it doesn't matter if the if if a guy's having uh, surgery on an arm, uh, you know, because he he broke it in a fight in the jail, or he's having surgery on an arm because he broke it before he was ever arrested. It, but if he is under if he is in the custody of uh, of the jail, the county is going to pay for that pay that bill, and they can't get out of it. Okay. But the way they but one way that they do try to get around it. Uh, to not pay for some of these is to release people. So if someone like, like your guy, who's there for non-payment of child support or whatever, uh, a lot of times the judges will just release them. You know, we'll take, uh, they get admitted to, to, uh, the hospital and, uh, they'll, the uh, deputies at the jail will contact the judge and say, we want this guy released so we don't have to pay his bill. And the judge will release him on recognizance. And then he's no longer incarcerated. So now he's back to whatever insurance or non-insurance he has. So this actually is, is a problem because once, uh, once they're released and they don't, they, they no longer have funding. So if they're, if the county's no longer on the hook for the bill, patient has no insurance I have seen cases where the the hospital just says, "Well, we're discharging them. Then we're not going to do what we planned on doing because they are not funded, and we we deem this not an emergency." So sure. that falls back into you know the limitations of the overall medical system in our country, which is really screwed up, as you guys know. Right. Wow. So um, the popular press is uh, full of of um, uh, sensationalized cases about. Um, uh, incarcerated people getting elective surgery uh, or semi-elective surgery. Um, obviously, uh, individual cases are brought forward to try to scare people and just to, to generate excitement. In your experience, how often does that occur? I mean, plastic surgeries and, and um, semi-elective things, um, uh, gastric bypass, is that uh, really something that, that occurs at a, at a, I guess my question is, does it occur at a rate that's the same or more than the general population? Do you have a sense of that? Um, well, um, I don't know if it's, it's probably at a rate less than the general population because Mm -hmm. there's, there are pressures on, um, correctional physicians to cut costs. So if something's truly elective, uh, there's a, a pressure not to have it done. Um, but that is a, that's a very fuzzy line, right? So you've got surgeries that are not elected. So a guy is having, uh, or procedures. So, uh, I had a case where a gentleman comes into the jail and he has a heart attack and he goes and has, um, emergency bypass grafting and gets six grafts. So, I mean, nobody's going to uh, say that that's elective. Of course, it, it's, it's gotta be done and it's not elective. 
But let's say uh, instead it's someone who has a heart attack and uh, we can put in a stent or not and which one are we going to do. Usually the inmate will, that decision will be made by the, by the specialist and specialists want to do the procedure. So if we send someone to, to uh, a bariatric surgeon and the bariatric surgeon says, sure, I want to do surgery, um, that surgery usually will be done. Um, then there are the, the things that are truly elective, um, breast augmentation or mm-hmm. a nose job for truly cosmetic reasons. Those probably aren't going to get done. For an inmate, um, where that line is between elective and non-elective is a is a small hernia that it, that is causing no problem. Is that going to get? Is that elective or is that non-elective? Is that going to get fixed or is that not going to get fixed? Um, and it depends on a lot of factors. How long is the patient going to be in in jail? So if a patient has a hernia that's uh, not bothering him and he's going to be released in a week, I'm going to guess it's not going to get fixed in that week. Mm-hmm. If he's in prison, um, for the rest, you know, for 20 years, they probably should fix it. It's only going to get worse. They're going to have to do it eventually. They should do it. Although some, some prison systems are, you know, will argue even that. So as a physician caring for a patient here, is it, do you have the final word, word or can the warden overrule you or is there a committee? I mean, who, how many decision makers are involved with this? Well, the warden can't rule or shouldn't. I should say that uh, a warden for uh, a jail commander should not overrule a medical decision. Um, and that's where physicians have to fight. Um, a lot of times uh, wardens and uh uh, jail commanders um, are worried about the bottom line. Something's really expensive, and is there any other way that we can do this? But most of the time, they 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 won't overrule it because they're they're liable in court, right? So they're sure. going to lose if they. Sure. It's not going to come out well if they do. Um, but there are cases where um, uh, uh, the jail people are hesitant to do something and physicians have to fight for the rights of their patients in, in the correctional patients. So like if you're talking about like a aortic aneurysm and it could go anytime, but you don't know for sure, that would be a discussion with them, you know, the logistics of getting them to a hospital, you know, right. and that's really you fighting for them saying, Hey, okay, they may not die tomorrow, but they might. And, you know, we really need to get this fixed. I mean, the same thing, a patient's going to think about even on, on the outside, but, um, yeah, it's well, a better example. A better example is, uh, this, this is a real case. So, uh, a patient, uh, breaks his arm. He needs to have a sur- uh, surgical reconstruction. It's scheduled for Tuesday, Tuesday at nine. Um, and, uh, come that morning, the, the jail commander says, hey, we're short-staffed, uh, two deputies didn't call in, and so we're not going to take the patient to a surgery. No, you are going to take the patient to a surgery. I don't care. He's got to go. And so that is, uh, that's often the case, is, is one of staff, uh, security staffing. Hmm. So in this case, they finally brought in a couple of people on, um, on overtime, uh, to, to take the patient, and he did go to his surgery. 
Um, but it is a, a, a hardship sometimes for the deputies because if someone's in the hospital for three days, they have to sit there in a chair outside the room twiddling their thumbs um, because they have to be guarded. Yeah, that's true. Well, Jeff, let's take a step back. So, you know, you had, had served 23 years as an ER physician. I mean, that's, that's a yes. career right there, right? So you get this call. You know, at first you say, ah, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that's what I want to do. They come back to you. They really need help. I mean, take us back to your mindset then. I mean, you know, what were you worried about? Your safety, you know, the environment you're going into, you know, and what was the, what was your first experience walking into, you know, the prison or the jail and tell us about your first patients. I mean, what, what was that? <laughs> well, um, yeah, it was, it, it, it was like walking into another world, like a third world country. So the jail back then, um, was an old, nasty uh, concrete box, and they had no medical room, and there was no medical facilities. There was nothing. So when I first went into the jail in order to see patients, we literally had a folding uh, table, and we put a sheet over the top of it, and that was huh. the table I examined people on. They had nothing. Uh, since they built a new jail and they put in a, med a nice medical room, and that's wonderful. At another jail, they had nothing, and so I would see patients. I didn't even have a table. The only thing I had to see patients in is a visitation room that had two little chairs. Uh, well, they're not chair stools, metal stools that were bolted onto the floor, and there were two of them in this little tiny room, and that's how I could – I. I would see patients, but you got to make do with what you have. I mean, I can't say, well, I can't see patients here, um, so I'm not going to see my patient. Well, they're your patient. You've got to make do. It's like you're in a third world country. You're in some uh, um, refugee camp in, I don't know, Kenya, and uh, the it's primitive, but you, you, you do the best you can with what you have. Since Estelle v. Gamble, most of the new prisons and jails are have been built to have uh, at least a small medical room devoted to medical services. And so I don't have to do any of that, but I just told you anymore. But part of what, uh, um, what I liked about uh, correctional medicine was the challenge of how to get it done. I really liked it. You know, I had a chance to read some of your blog and just fascinating things. I was an orthopedist and occasionally once in the blue moon, we would have um, a contracted case with a, with a prison. And so it'd come in, but it was totally artificial. Um, you know, I didn't have any uh, contact in the, the jail or the prison itself. Um, why, why did you decide to write the blog and, and um, what was, what's been the reception? It seems like you get some good questions from outside places coming in and, and, um, uh, is there a, a community of correctional medicine doctors who, who like to compare notes and, and like to, uh, to, um, to just reach out to each other? Well, the answer is yes, there is. Uh, I decided to write the blog because um, correctional medicine is such a, um, a black hole. Um, so I was kind of tired of people saying, why in the world do you go into, you know, uh, jail medicine, you're wasting your talents. So the assumption is, is that people are put into uh, jail or 
prison as a punishment and they don't deserve medical care. And so my job as a physician in a jail is to not give them medical care. And what kind of a doctor does that? <laughs> and just the ignorance was uh, astounding. And so I, I decided to write it for that reason. The reception's been far greater than I, I imagined. Um, there is, uh, there is, there are organizations, um, among correctional medical, uh, people. The biggest one is probably the national commission on correctional health care, which puts on several conferences a year, which are attended by thousands. Um, wow. and, uh, correctional physicians have, uh, an academy, the, uh, uh, American College of Correctional Physicians (ACCP), but uh, one of the one of the things that people don't understand is how many there are. I'll bet there are uh, as many correctional physicians or people or physicians who are working in jails and prisons as there are ER docs. Because when you think of every little jail, every county in every state has to have a jail, and every one of them has to have a a correctional staff, you know, a medical staff, um, that adds up. There are, there are hundreds, thousands of, of nurses, doctors, mental health people working in correctional medicine. Yeah. I really hadn't thought about that. I mean, you were just listing off the numbers earlier for the Florida, you know, Department of Corrections and, you know, one prison at 10,000 inmates. I mean, you just don't think about that, how big some of these are. Just amazing. Yeah, they're like little cities, some, some of them. Yeah, I guess they really are. Well, so back to my earlier question. I mean, not knowing anything about it, you have to be somewhat concerned about your safety. I mean, these, some of them are violent offenders. They're, they're there for a reason. What, what, what's the process and what are the procedures to protect your safety when you're examining a patient? You know, who else is there? And is it as risky as we'd think it, it is looking on the outside and— What's the interaction like with these people, especially meeting them for the first time? They may not trust you, I would imagine. Uh, well, that's true. So what I found in uh, my many years of working in jails and prisons is that I'm way safer there than I ever was in, in the emergency room. When I worked as an emergency room doc, I was hit, kicked, um, wrestled with, peed on, literally, um, yelled at. Uh, all of those things happened, um, but none of those things have ever happened to me in, in the jail. And there's two reasons for that. One is, is that when I see people in a jail, they're sober. So when they come in the, uh, to the ER, they're drunk and belligerent and fighting. But mm -hmm. when they come into the jail, even if they're drunk and belligerent, they're put in a cell and, you know, and I usually don't see them until they're calmed down. Uh, with a few exceptions. Um, and so when, when I do see them, they're mostly sober. And the second thing is there's a deputy there. There's a correctional person or a, yeah, a correctional staff member there. And I try to preserve privacy, but there's always one right there. So, so if you've got a big burly guard standing over you, you're, you're unlikely to act out. Um, so I have never had a, a bad experience. There have been correctional people who have been you know, have been harmed, but I, I've never been in a situation where I felt unsafe. That's amazing. So, but yes, there are people that, uh, that are 
dangerous. And uh, usually if I have to see someone who's dangerous, um, they'll come down in handcuffs and there'll be not one but two correctional people and they'll be standing on either side of the of the patient as I am examining him. Um, so he's unlikely to do anything. Um, if someone's really dangerous, sometimes they won't, I won't even go uh, um, have them brought to the medical uh, area. I'll instead go to their cell and see mm. them at their cell. Uh-huh. Um, okay. And sometimes if my safety can't be um, guaranteed going into the cell, I'll just talk to them through the door. I've done that oh. a few times. Okay. Uh, you do the best you can, but of course, the most important thing is is to be safe, not to get your patient hurt, not to get me hurt, not to get a correctional officer hurt. So, uh, I mean, God, there's so many questions here. Uh, how does HIPAA work with this? Because I assume they still have rights, just like anyone else, but privacy is is a much trickier thing to deal with when there's one or two guards around, when there's you know, access to records, I would assume, in the prison system. I mean, yeah, let's, t- let's tackle that one. How does that work? Uh, uh, well, pri- they, do have, they do have an expectation of privacy within reason, but they're incarcerated. So to some degree, they've, they've given up their expectation of privacy, and security takes precedence over privacy. Mm-hmm. So uh, a person can't say, well, I, I, um, I don't want my conversation to be heard. So take off these shackles, uh, make all the correctional officers go away so that I can talk to you. They don't have that right because they're incarcerated. They have been adjudicated to be incarcerated. And so that comes first. So we try to preserve their privacy. If, um, if the, if the correctional officers are not needed on an immediate basis for security, they are not privy to the conversation. So a good way to do that in one jail, um, the correctional officers are can see what's happening in the in the medical area through two plexiglass windows. So they can't hear what's happening, but they can observe. And we can take the patient, if we have to do, say, a pelvic exam, we can take him to an area where they can't see that. Um, but there's always an alarm button that we can push if we need to. Or uh, we can have a correctional officer just outside the, the, the door. So if something happens, they can come running in. Um, that's, how it happen- that's how it works in my jails. There's always a correctional officer or a deputy nearby. One of the other rules we have in corrections is that a medical person may never, ever, ever be alone with a patient. Hmm. So a nurse may Hmm. not be alone with a patient, a doctor may not be alone. So there's usually a nurse and a doctor or uh, two nurses or something uh, or a nurse and a deputy, but ironclad rule, never be alone with the patient. So that is that is designed to keep people safe, um, both from physical harm and also from the allegation, well, uh, they touched me inappropriately, that sort of thing. That then right. would become a he said, she said thing. We don't ever want that to happen. Can they sue you for malpractice? Is, is that Absolutely. A- yes, they have not lost any rights uh, in, in that regard. Um, 
they can sue for malpractice and they can also sue uh, for um, as a tort claim for violating Estelle v. Gamble. So uh-huh. you, uh, so they might allege you were deliberately indifferent to my serious medical need because you didn't send me to the hospital when I had belly pain, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. So they can actually file those lawsuits. Uh, most of those lawsuits are filed pro se, which means they don't have an attorney. They just write them themselves. And that doesn't mean they're not well written. Some of them are very well written. Um, I guess I got a lot of time uh, to hang out in the prison library. Yeah, they have so. a lot of time, and some of them are very good at it. Um, but I actually have had fewer uh, malpractice lawsuits as a correctional physician than I had as a as a uh, emergency physician. Not God, that isn't I that amazing? <laughs> That, that says a lot about a number of things, Jeff. <laughs> yes, it yeah. does. So, so you feel safer and less uh, malpractice suits. You know, why aren't more people signing up for this? <laughs> right. And I don't have to deal with uh, DRGs and CPT coding right. and uh, the, the blues and Medicaid, and I'm free from all of that. So yeah. well, uh, in, yeah. uh, in that regard, my, my practice now is wonderful. I like it. Yeah. The whole world. I was um, recruited uh, for a job at University of South Carolina. One of the recruitment things was that I'm a pediatric orthopedist, and they said we have a contract with the um, the correctional facilities, and every single uh, 18-year-old and below in the the South Carolina system will be yours to work with. And um, they gave me a number, which was astonishing. And I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of security in that business. Unfortunately, the uh, number of, of patients that you would have on hand is not getting smaller, is it? Uh, no. As a matter of fact, in the recent uh, recession um, that happened a few years ago, my practice didn't change at all. I mean, sure. there was no there was yeah. no recession in the correctional medicine business. Right. <laughs> it just keeps keeps going and going, which is another story. Um, right. One of the things that's that's an interesting statistic when you're talking about worthiness. So a lot of people think, well, people are in jail or people are in prison, and so they're not. Why are they? Why do they get medical care when I can't get it on the outside? Which is a legitimate question. Um, but one of the answers is is that. The United States incarcerates so many people that at least half, and that that number is a true number, at least half of the people that are incarcerated in the United States would not be incarcerated in any other country, uh, developed country in the world. So when you talk about their worthiness, why shouldn't they get medical care? Um, So the issue is not that they have access to medical care. The issue is why don't you have access to medical care if you're not in prison? Right. So um, I guess the question to ask is, are there any lessons from the correctional medical facilities and the way things are set up that we that could apply to medicine outside of the correctional facilities? Is there an efficiency that uh, that you see that could somehow make uh, non-correctional medicine more functional? Um, well, uh, this is my personal opinion and there are correctional physicians who would disagree and there are a lot of politicians who would disagree, but I'm a believer in the one payer system. I think the one payer Mm -hmm. system is, is more efficient, um, and provides overall medical, uh, better medical care. And that's what we have in jails and prisons. It's a one payer system. Um, and so inmates have better access 
to medical care. Um, you can argue that um, that uh, that overall <laughs> they don't have as good a medical care as someone who is who is fully insured and has a good relationship with a you know primary care physician and that sort of thing. Uh, but the real comparison is a, an inmate compared to someone on the outside who has no medical care or no right. medical insurance and so hasn't seen a doctor in many years. Their access, the inmates' access to medical care is much better, which is why I have made many, many, many diagnoses um, of people who have become incarcerated and say things like, uh, one woman said, I'd like you to look at this mass on my breast. I haven't, I've had it for a long time, and but I don't have any me medical insurance, and so I haven't gone to see a doctor, so I take a look at this, and it's a big fungating cancer. Mm -hmm. um, it's a tragedy that she didn't, she had to come to jail to get that diagnosed. But, yeah. uh, you know, what? what's this thing on my hand? hand. This is a patient about two weeks ago. What's this thing on my hand? Well, that's a skin cancer. We better get that taken care of. <laughs> it's a tragedy that he has to come to jail, get that uh, diagnosed. Right. Um, hey, I noticed that your blood pressure is 140 or I mean 240 over 120. Oh, really? I haven't seen a doctor in a long time. I didn't know. So let's get right. that treated. Yeah. What is the, uh, the compliance uh, of the uh, incarcerated patients? Are they generally pretty compliant or is it like the rest of the population. Oh, they're way more compliant with medications, and that's because yeah. uh, they have someone bringing their medications right. to them. Exactly. They don't get to they don't get to have them. So, um, a nurse uh, hands out um, medications uh, during pill call or pill pass. Mm -hmm. So you know, two th or three times a day, um, the inmates will get in a particular dorm. So let's say that there's a dorm of forty inmates. And um, that people call pill call. So if you have, you know, you're supposed to get pills, come to the door and they line up and they come out and they get their pills. So a couple of things is we know exactly who's not coming, right? And so we can call them down to the medical clinic. Why aren't you getting, uh, coming to take your pills? We know exactly who's taking them, who's not. We know the exact percentage uh, of times they've missed. Um, so overall, of course, they take their meds better in, in jail or prison than they do on the outside overall. The other advantage to that is that they're seen by a, uh, a medical professional like face-to-face, -face, um, you know, two times a day. Let's say they're taking meds two times a day. Um, they get face-to-face -face with the nurse two times a day. So uh, many times uh, a nurse will say, I saw so-and-so in line, and he doesn't look so good, so I want to bring him down to, to clinic. Even though he didn't request to be seen in clinic, the nurse caught it and brought him down. And out of curiosity, is there a formulary of approved drugs and equipment you can use, or are you pretty free to prescribe what you feel is necessary? Well, there's, uh, we're free to prescribe what's necessary. Most places have a formulary, but a, a, a formulary, in my view, is not a banned medication list. You may not use these meds, but rather it's a, a list of meds that are pre-authorized, so you don't have to get uh, approval to use them. You don't have to have a consultation. So I have a, I have a formulary in my jails, and I have a physician assistant who helps me, and Anything on the formulary, he can just prescribe, but if it's not on the formulary, he has to call me and we talk about it. And most of the time I say, sure, fine, but 
Um, and then I have to sign a form that allows that to be dispensed uh, from the pharmacy. But there's nothing that, in my jails at least, that can't be prescribed or that won't be prescribed or totally off limits. Interesting. That's how, that's how I view uh, formularies. There are the meds that you need approval for and the meds that you don't need approval for. Right. All right, let's take a quick diversion here. We talked about this briefly before we started recording today, but um, one of the things about doing these podcasts is you start, you come across information you just never would have thought to look up. And when I was preparing for this uh, earlier in the week, um, I noticed Idaho is a, is a death penalty state. And when yes. you Google this, sure enough, the execution procedures manual comes up on Google. And who would have thought to ever look at something like this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to read this briefly just because it's, it's just curious. Um, and then uh, just want to get your thoughts about this and, and any experience you've had in it. But uh, this is Section 6, so um, licensed physician on site. Licensed physician will be on site uh, near the execution unit. A administrative team member will verify the physician's professional license and complete a criminal background check. Interesting. Um, they are in no way supposed to participate in the execution. And the on-site physician will provide the following services. First aid, if any person in the immediate area needs resuscitation, um, maybe somebody faints. And they will be there for resuscitation if the offender uh, should have a problem during the execution process or a phone call comes in. And it goes on and on. I mean, it even talks about what to do if a physician thinks a female um, offender is pregnant and, what, and, and there are specific instructions for that. So I never, Jeff, I never would have thought to look at this stuff, but somebody has to think about all these things and, and make rules. So one, tell us when you, what you think about it. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but also what the physician's role in is in this process and you know, any experience you've had in this or maybe just treating inmates on death row. Well, I, I do jails. Uh, I've been to, I, I've been to a couple of death rows in, pri in prisons, but I've never, I've never treated, uh, uh, treated inmates uh, who are on death row because I'm mainly a jail guy uh, clinically. Um, but I have been called by uh, Idaho Department of Corrections and asked to assist them in executions. One time was to assist in getting the medications that they use for uh, executions because they're hard to get. Uh, I declined to do that. And another was to be the, the doctor that, as you described, stands by in case, you know, they administer the execution drugs. And at that very moment, the phone rings and it's the governor commuting the sentence. And then you run in and try to resuscitate the, uh, the, uh, the inmate or someone who's watching has a heart attack and falls down. You do that. I declined to do that too. Cause I just personally, I'm anti-death penalty and, and, uh, I don't want to be involved in any way, shape or form. Um, so, um, the American medical association and state medical boards prohibit uh, physicians from actually administering uh, or being involved in the actual execution process, which is why the manual says that they won't be because they can't, they won't be able to find a physician who uh, was willing to do that. And if they did, that physician would immediately lose their license if they actually mm -hmm. participated in an execution. So as far as you know, are they having a lot of trouble finding physicians volunteering to do this? I mean, it says they'll remain anonymous, but I guess there's still a risk that someone's going to say they saw you there. So. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. 
Hmm. Um, I think that they've, they've probably uh, been able to find a physician because it's a little bit benign. I mean, if you think about it, uh, you're there to resuscitate people in the, in the crowd, in the, in, the, uh, in the people who are watching. It's not a crowd, but the, the small group of people who are witnessing the execution. If someone, your main reason is to be an emergency medical responder for them. Um, and maybe for the inmate himself, but the, the likelihood of that is really tiny. Um, so I don't, don't think they'll, that they'd have a f- trouble finding someone to, to fill that role. That person is not going to be me, but they'll find somebody. All right, quick diversion. I, I said to touch on that, but we'll get back on track. We're getting close yeah. to the hour here. So, yeah, um, so, so Jeff, I have um, one more thing, and this uh, it. This would open an entire discussion, so I don't mean to to uh, try to go for a second hour. Um, your last blog uh, post uh, was obviously, t- uh, and we will post a uh, connection to your blog so people can read it themselves. But it touched on a, a very recent, very high profile suicide uh, while under um, uh, incarceration. Um, the thing that was fascinating from that was the the uh, explication of all the regulations that are involved, and this is the way the process should work, and this is where it fell apart. Um, did you find that the learning the regulations has been difficult, or that uh, they're at all onerous? Do they keep you? Do they get in the way of your treating patients? Um, well, there, I, first of all, I don't think they're regulations. They're they're it, it's a process. And the process is pretty standard uh, across uh, different correctional facilities because it seems to work. But I did have to learn it, and it, 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 I don't think it's onerous. Um, I think there are ways in which it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first thing is, is if, if someone comes in and they say, you know, my life is over and I'm going to kill myself and in this jail and you can't stop me, well, your job is to stop them, and that's everybody's job. That's the correctional officer's job, the deputy's job, the mental health people, the doctor. Our, our job is to not let them kill themselves. And so how you do that is deny them the opportunity. So you take away anything they can use to hang themselves. You put them in a room where they can't hang themselves. You, you have someone watching them. Um, and you get them counseling and you have them seen by uh, a uh, practitioner so you can get them on medications if they need that, that sort of thing. So that's the first job. And most people who commit suicide are not act on active suicide watch. Mm-hmm. Where people commit suicide is mostly when they're not on suicide watch. <laughs> Um, but someone who really, really wants to commit suicide, if they say the right things, you know, they, they lie. Okay. I'm, I'm better now. I'm not going to commit suicide. I promise I'm, I'm not, I'm feeling safe. And so they're taken off of suicide watch, but their intention is still to commit suicide. They've lied to everybody. Um, but they're now they're not being observed every, every minute. Um, they can get the job done and suicides are the number one cause of death in jails by far. Really? Right. Wow. Well, and we're getting really close on the time here, Jeff, but I mean, mental health in general and, you know, in the correction system, I mean, I guess medication adherence would be better, but do they have access to the care they really need? Is it a huge gap, I would imagine? I mean, what's your assessment overall? 
Well, the assessment overall is that uh, jails and prisons have become uh, the de facto warehouses for the mentally ill, and it's wrong. So, uh, for example, let me give you an example. This is a true case. So a guy uh, is, is found to be naked in the library, and he's naked because he's acutely psychotic, and he doesn't understand that he's doing anything wrong. He's psychotic. He, and so uh, he needs to go to a mental health hospital, uh, but there's no mental health hospital that'll take him. His wallet biopsy is negative. Um, they're full anyway. So where does he go? He goes to the jail. Um, and in the jail, he's put into a concrete box, right? Um, and um, that's not very good for him. People who are psychotic need to have uh, normal social interaction. So, uh, if you look at his overall, uh, well-being, this is not the right setting for him to be treated. But on the other hand, he is going to get treatment. He's going to be seen by mental health professionals. He's going to be seen by practitioners, psychiatrists. He's going to get, uh, uh, on medications. Um, he might go through the commitment proceedings and then sent to the state, mental health hospital down the road. Um, so he'll get the treatment he needs, but not in the setting it should be provided in. Hmm. Um, that's in, in a nutshell. But mental health is a very big part of correctional medicine. Um, so people who are acutely psychotic or acutely manic and out of control, they don't usually get sent to uh, a mental health hospital while they're in that condition. More commonly, they're sent to the local jail, and that's mm -hmm. where they get their initial treatment. Sure. And that's a, that's a flaw in our system, but, um, but that's the way it is, and, and we deal with that all the time in our jails. Well, Jeff, uh, there is so much more we could talk about. We might have to talk you into maybe coming, coming back and joining us in, for a round two at some point. Um, Absolutely. I, I want to talk about research in, in this population and how you actually interact with patients more in depth and on and on. But um, but we got to let you get back and, uh, you know, like I said, maybe we'll, we'll go for a round two. But just to wrap things up, you know, for people who want to learn more about this, maybe, you know, we have a lot of medical students who listen as well. People might be thinking about this as, a, as an option for them down the road. Where would you point people to learn more about this and about you and um, – you know, corrections medicine in general? Well, there's a, there's a couple of blogs. There's mine, of course, and then there's a, a blog by my uh, good friend, Lori Shonley, who blogs about correctional nursing. Um, there's the National Commission on Correctional Health Care that has a very good website that has a lot of educational sort of things, and, uh, and, they, and they publish a, uh, a magazine called Correct Care, which is about correctional medicine. Um, so there's a few there's a few sites to go to, and that's the place to start um, for people who are interested. Well, we'll get all those up in the show notes uh, so everybody can look look further. And um, you know, with that said, Jeff, this is fascinating. I mean, just a whole world I knew so little about, and I think same can be said about most of us out here. But it's it's just there's <laughs> just so much to explore. It's really interesting. But um, I just want to thank you for carving out some time with us here. And, uh, well, thank you for inviting me. Um, it's been fun talking to you guys. Absolutely. 
Well, everyone, uh, that's Dr. Jeffrey Keller. And like I said, we'll get up uh, some more resources on the, on, the, on the website so you can explore further. And whenever, wherever you're listening to us, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.